Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with a blog to watch. I have a very special show I'm doing with the guys from Scottish Watches. We are doing a mini series about how to get into watches, how to understand luxury watches, some of the right things to look for in your first luxury watches. Guys, I'm handing you the floor. Well, normally I would now say welcome, welcome, welcome to the Scottish Watches podcast. And it just feels really odd not to be the first person that speaks. As Ricky knows, I am somewhat talkative. So this is going to be a challenge because I think uh, it's well recognised that both myself and Ariel are both quite talkative. So we'll do our very best not to talk over or each other. I make no promises, however. Ricky is the one who's going to have to edit this. So yeah. we've, we've promised to be in our best behaviour. But yes, as Ariel says, we are going to do a Watches 101 over four episodes and this is episode number one and what we're going to do is we're going to use an old article of Ariel's uh, you can find it uh, on a blog to watch it is called top things to look for in a luxury watch entry level luxury this was from October the 7th 2009 and as always in the Swiss watch industry the luxury watches very little has changed since 2009 it's all exactly the same isn't it Ariel Things have definitely changed. I actually remember <laughs> that I was driving from San Francisco, where I was living at the time, to Los Angeles, mm -hmm. thinking about this entire series. So I had a long several hours in the car, and then I got back, and I wrote these three articles right in a row. The idea was to help give some type of a foundation for people who are just getting in the hobby and who are overwhelmed by the number of different things that you need to evaluate. I think like you gentlemen, when I got into watches, I use the internet a lot, and so much of what you do is um, like, I'll call it tech spec hunting. Yeah. You try to evaluate one watch's technical specifications, materials, sizes, performance versus another. But at the end of the day, without some context, a lot of that doesn't mean anything. And there's a lot of tech specs you don't even know to look at unless the manufacturer features them. So I felt back in 2009 that a really good way to get into watches was to start to understand what to look at. And that was the genesis of this. And I've matured a lot, but this was actually just uh, maybe eight or nine months after deciding that I would do a blog to watch full time. So this was very early on in a blog to watch being, you know, my career. Right. And now it's 2020. Um, and it's great that these articles are still being talked about because I have a lot of articles from 10 years ago, from five or six years ago that um, are very relevant. And it's very challenging when you have a blog to tell people, oh, there's this thing from several years ago they may be interested in. So I it's it's I love it when people discover something that I've written a while ago and, and they talk about it again. Um, it's oftentimes I write about things when they're a new issue. So around this same exact time, maybe a little bit later, I wrote an important article that was called Is Doomsday Coming for Traditional Watch <laughs> Retailers? Mm. Or is just Doomsday Coming full stop? Yeah. Well, it you know, it, it, I had to be a little specific there. I wanted to start with, you know, a little, a little uh, one area of the watch industry. But Doomsday has come in a lot of ways, and I had been one of the few to talk about that. And I remember at the time, there were some people just getting the watch industry that were, they, they hadn't seen anything like this. No one was speaking about some of these bigger problems, and they were started to share it amongst one another, saying, does anybody know anything about this? Is anyone else talking about this? And it turns out no one really was. And it was very ahead of its time back in 2010. And now, a decade later, 
people are really on a public level in this only starting to talk about that. So this this list of things for what to look for in luxury watches, um, I guess the point I was trying to make is I haven't seen any better list, even though this is 11 years old. Well, the good thing is Rick mentioned there is it sounds like a long time ago, a decade, but in the watch industry that's been running for hundreds of years, that's a drop in the ocean. So everything still is relevant. I cast my eye over this article just to see if anything much had changed and it hadn't. So I think this is a great foundation for everybody and we should just get started. A little bit of context, we are all obviously on lockdown. So one of the other reasons for doing this now is if civilization does end, then like one of those books you read that tells you how to rebuild civilization, if we need to rebuild the knowledge of watch collecting when we've all passed on, then uh, this will be a good foundation for that. So the first article deals with watches in and around the $300 mark. So if you're buying an under $1,000 watch, above $300, Dollars. These are the things uh, that are worth looking for and considering in your purchase. So, first up, Ariel, you were going to say something. Yeah, I wanted to sort of, you know, I was listening to what you're saying about, you know, coronavirus and all that and preserving this knowledge. And <laughs> yes, it's kind of, it's kind of amusing to think that you know in the apocalypse people are not just going to be worried about watches but how to t- discern between a better watch and, and a worse watch um i i think what's really interesting here is that when you look at these this is really an evaluation of how to determine if a tool is of a good quality nothing in this list is about pedigree nothing in this list is about how old the brand is nothing in this list is about design this is designed to tell you when you're spending the money, what you should be expecting in terms of a quality level, a fit and finish level, things like that. I begin with every single watch being a tool. There's layers of desire that you build upon that, like, oh, someone famous also liked this tool, or this tool was used in this very interesting context somewhere. But at the beginning, they're all tools. And so when we're talking about these things to look for, especially at a budget level, if you spend $300, at least traditionally, at least 10 years ago, there was all these fashion watches that you could get that were like plastic and nothing special. Or you could get like a, a watch that was you know, all metal and had a lot of custom parts for the same amount of money. And what I was really trying to do is say, hey, everyone, if you're spending $300, you can get a lot more than just a lot of basic pieces of plastic. Yes. So with that in mind, we will start with our list, uh, hopefully, of 10 items that we'll get through in this particular episode. And the idea of this is that no question is so stupid and that actually even myself in reading this, I'm like, oh yeah, I've never really thought about that or never really understood why that was an issue. But anyway, the first one we're going to speak about is to do with the crystal and specifically looking at sapphire crystals. So uh, boys, uh, give us uh, your thoughts on sapphire crystal. What are the alternatives First of all, to sapphire. In fact, even more basic, what is a sapphire crystal? You always hear about they've grown their own sapphire. Ariel, Ricky. Those are the things that you keep in your house to give you wellness. <laughs> uh, power crystals, is that what those are called? I think so, yeah. Um, is it dilithium crystals? <laughs> Do they not run spaceships? I'm not sure. I, I, I haven't found yet a watch that was, you know, collector worthy that was formulated from these crystals. But synthetic <laughs> sapphire crystal... You can get to your heart's content as well as synthetic uh, ruby, which is chemically quite similar, but which is used in a different context. I think the most interesting thing about sapphire crystals, uh, like you talked about, is that um, they are literally grown for these watches. And I have seen at least two different places where sapphire crystals were being grown. The first time was in Japan at Seiko. And 
they literally have their own special formulation to grow sapphire crystal. Why sapphire crystal? Well, it's something that we can, we can uh, grow artificially. Diamonds, while they're sort of working on it, is a stronger material, but it's not one that we have uh, any uh, real effective knowledge in how to make synthetically. I guess in the modern jewelry industry, yes, but diamond crystals aren't a thing. Sapphire can be polished and it has a high surface uh, strength, which means it's very scratch resistant and it can be clear. This was a challenge for hundreds of years in the watch industry. And that was really like, how do you both protect the dial and see through it and use a material that isn't very fragile? Because if you think of what are some of the materials before a glass is probably your most you know, iconic, um, broken, like watch face, you know, material. I always think of the pocket watch with the cracked, the cracked crystal. And if you remember, pocket watches had these hinged cases to protect the crystal from falling. So normal glass is what people refer to as mineral glass or mineral crystal. That's just plain old glass. No, no, that's, that's, um, that's different. Uh, it's, it's, it's a form of a glass, but if you, if you think about it, mineral crystal, actually has some advantages over sapphire crystal because rather than shatter as normal glass might, mineral crystal cracks off. So for right. military applications, mineral crystals were preferred because if they did experience a hard shock, rather than completely shattering, uh, a piece of it would come off. Of course, you can shatter a mineral crystal if you hit it hard enough, uh, but that's one of the things. But if you have a watch, scratch resistance on the crystal is something you really want. And it's funny to me because you know you have these Omega Speedmaster professionals and some other um, new watches that are meant to be like vintage watches using hezolite, which is an acrylic which is nice and clear and cheap to replace, but scratches very, very easily. So Hesalite is plastic. Yes. Mineral crystal is more like glass. And yes. sapphire crystal is the stuff, safety glass. That's what they use in submarines. Uh, and uh, sapphire crystal is the stuff we want to look out for on it's the daddy. watches because it gives, it's the daddy. It gives mm -hmm. the, the most all-round performance. Tell me... When they grow this, do they grow it in like great big lumps and cut it down or do they grow it in like as close to the size of the watch that they are going to use it for when the time they polish it down or do they grow it like in, in ingots? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the way that crystals grow is somewhat organic. So they want to make a sort of cylinder shape out of it, um, but it's not always not a perfect shape. And then they, and they cut out smaller cylinders and they use those as the basis for the round shape of the of, of the sapphire crystal, which is on top of most watches, not all round. But yes, they they want to minimize the amount of machining, so they try to cut it into these ways where there's you know minimal wastage, and they can get a good amount of crystals out of each of these. But it takes I think a few months to grow the crystals. It's not a particularly fast process, and different crystals around the world, uh, because they're, they have slightly different materials, have different coloration. Hmm. So the best crystals are the clear ones that have the whitest color but if you have a lower quality sapphire crystal sometimes they have a pink or a yellow or a green tint to it and they're not always as clear so it's similar to like a diamond where you want the clearest one with the best color and it's actually the same way in sapphire crystals. Now I've also heard that it's quite difficult to shape these things because there was a, an Excalibur watch from Roger Dubuis that had a very interesting shaped sapphire on it but they then changed that later on because it was so difficult to produce so I take it that's another concern when producing these things. So now we're getting into consideration 
fashions that are by no means an entry-level luxury watch. <laughs> nowadays... Did you bring in the Roger Dewey? <laughs> no, no, no. But it's, it's interesting. We're talking about the change. Back in 2009, you had sapphire crystal that was used as a you know crystal material um, on the case back, maybe a couple things here and there, but that's it. Nowadays, when we talk about watches are definitely over $20,000, uh, you have watches, also a million dollars, watches that are entirely made out of sapphire crystal, which is a very interesting development. Yes, you just couldn't do that 10 years ago. So the thing to watch out for then on your entry-level watch if you're collecting, so is go for a sapphire crystal if you can possibly find or afford one. Some quick examples of that at the $300, I mean, that's your kind of Seiko 5s, uh, any number of these, any number of micro brands will use sapphire crystals. The, the, the cost has gone down else. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Sa Sa sapphire crystals started to become in vogue in the 1980s, the early 1980s. I think it was early, it was like 1982 that the uh, you know the Rolex Submariner first started using sapphire crystals. So the 80s were when it started to come in. The 90s, it was definitely much more proliferated. Mm -hmm. And honestly, by today... The cost of sapphire crystals has gone down a lot, but not all sapphire crystals are created equally. There is, like I said, the, the material itself, the way it is cut, the thickness, the shape, and most importantly is the, the, the AR coating, the anti-reflective coating, the, the amount of coating, uh, the, the, the layers, whether it's placed just on the top, on the bottom. Well, I'm going so, to stop you there because that's episode two. <laughs> <laughs> stay tuned folks stay tuned so moving on from sapphire crystals we move on to the construction of the watch uh, of solid metal so specifically what's known as 316L stainless steel who wants to tell me what 316L stainless steel is and what the history of oh you guys by all means yeah go for it Ricky tell us all about it well my only sort of dealings with stainless steel before watches was performance exhaust systems for cars where you had 304 and 316 but there's when it comes to watches, there's so many other ones. There's 904L, and I'm not 100% sure, Rick, so why don't you explain to the good people? <laughs> well, unfortunately, I failed my metallurgy degree. We're going to have to give it back to Ariel then. Uh, well, then there we go. That's why we got him on. Yes. Or he got us on, or something like that. Ariel, tell <laughs> us about what your background is in steel manufacture. Come on, I can imagine you in your overalls in the mill, uh, pummeling out uh, ingots. Like of... Terminator 2. <laughs> yes, that's that's me on my off hours. I have a foundry, um, actually, in my attic. It's very light somehow. Um, <laughs> I'm like thinking, do I even have an attic? I, <laughs> um, I actually remember I was in, I was at at Rolex in their foundry where they were doing gold stuff and it was like crazy to see like molten gold dripping and being formed and stuff like that and I had this really nerdy session at Rolex talking about stainless steel and I got quite an interesting lesson in it. Um, I'm by no means an expert um, but I think the bottom line is what people need to know is that stainless steel is actually whole classifications of different types of steel and when you look at a really nice steel watch versus a not-so-nice steel watch, a lot of it is the finishing. And different types of steel are going to be harder, which means that when you polish them or you brush them or you do some type of treatment to the surface, it's going to look better and not look as good. And so when you are looking at a watch at an entry-level price, you want to look as expensive as possible. You want to look good. And what that means is that the actual metal itself needs to be good and needs to be machined in a way that allows it to be attractive. This is really what separates a not-so-great watch from a great watch. Isn't the actual material, but the little nuances of the material, as well as how the material is manufactured and decorated. So at the very least, 
You want to have a watch that has is a good grade of steel. Uh, 316L now is so common, it's it's like hard to not find it unless you go with like a 904, which is a more exclusive or expensive steel, or not by much. Um, and there's various grades of it. You can have two watches that are both, you know, 316L. You know, both say that they've been, you know, brushed and polished and look completely different. And mm-hmm. it's because of the slight differences in, in how those metals are, are finished. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, though, you really want to make sure that your watch doesn't use materials like plastics or things like that. And again, we're talking at the entry level. So the more metal it has in those price points, probably the longer it's going to last and the better materials it uses otherwise. But, you know, take your time to look at the metal and touch it. If it looks like it's been finished in an inexpensive way, it it probably has. That's the great thing about our naked eye. We're actually really good at noticing the difference between nicely finished metal and not as nicely finished metal. Good. And there are obviously lots of rabbit holes we could go down here. We'll probably touch on in a future episode, such as Damascus steel, tegumented steel and all those kind of things yes oh yeah uh, oh yeah we'll, we'll go on to all those but the other i uh, just a uh, brief point on this i suppose like sapphire is that the price has come down rapidly so as ricky touched on there are now a lot of metals that possibly wouldn't have been in the category of entry level uh, that now are that are competitive but one question i wanted to ask is you always hear especially in the rolex world uh kind of semi-vintage stuff of people talking about hollow ends and hollow bracelets and hollow end links. What is that and why does it matter? Yeah, so that's a really interesting point. And what you're talking about are certain pieces of a watch that are not solid metal, but that are hollow. And there's actually a good engineering reason in some instances to create hollow parts because they can be lighter weight. And who doesn't want something which is lighter weight? But it also sometimes means that they're cheaper. Now, again, back in 2009, this is a little bit more of a concern because you didn't have um, as many variety of materials to choose from for this price level. So, for example, ceramic. Ceramic back then was not a material that was easily available for inexpensive watches. Nowadays, it is, um, as well as carbon. You can buy a watch that's a few hundred dollars with a solid forged carbon case, which at the time was like a a $20,000 plus product from Audemars Piguet. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of materials that have become a lot more accessible in the last 11 years. But steel is fantastic because it's very inexpensive, but it has an, a, a lot of amazing qualities behind it. And steel killed the gold watch because mm-hmm. the gold watch was popular not because it was expensive, but because gold didn't tarnish. It didn't rust, and it didn't have really any effect if it was wet or or subject to the, to the elements. Stainless steel offered all those same corrosion-resistant properties or mostly corrosion-resistant properties in a very cheap price that could be polished up beautifully just like gold. What was the metals used before steel then, back in the day? Um, Well, gold was very popular or various types of coated metals where they would put like a paint Ah. or a plating on a a metal that would in fact rust. And I'm sure some of you have probably seen, you know, vintage washes and you look underneath it and you see not really rust, but like cheaper metal that almost looks like iron or something like that these are like cheaper versions of steel that have been have been coated right um and definitely and 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 you know aren't aren't solid stainless steel hollow end links why are they something non-desirable it it really goes back to the idea that you want a solidly built watch and um hollow parts can be damaged more easily can bend And if you look at a watch bracelet over time, less expensive ones will have bent parts and pieces of the bracelet will start to deform. 
And so the idea when you buy a nice watch is you want it to last as long as possible. And if it's a watch that you wear on a regular basis, you want it to put up with a lot of wear and tear. So solid metal parts that are machined or milled versus stamped are higher quality. Now, it's, most people are not even going to know how to look at a part and be like, that definitely looks machined. Um, and this gets a little bit too deep into the material science of steel. But just remember, if it's a solid metal part that looks like it has precision edges to it, it's probably been machined, and those are the most durable, high-quality parts that also have the nicest surfaces, and that's what you want to look for, um, especially an entry-level watch. And it will feel less jingly-jangly on the wrist. It will do. It will be less of that, yes. <laughs> okay, so we've managed to spend 20-odd minutes speaking about part one and two. So now we come on to the really easy short bit, which is to do with the movement. So Swiss movements, when this article was originally written, were, frankly, the be-all and the end-all. Uh, China didn't really figure in terms of any quality. Japanese movements were good, but possibly not quite as available uh, for the microbrand world, which was only barely in existence 10 years ago in comparison. So, Ariel, give us your thoughts, bring it right up to date as to what in an entry-level watch would be acceptable or most preferred in terms of movements, both quartz uh, and uh, mechanical. Probably the most interesting thing for me, which has happened since 2009, is the availability of smartwatches at the price levels that we are talking about now. Um, of course, those products weren't available back then, but now, if you're spending between three and $500 on a watch, you now have a smartwatch that might be pretty decently made and looks nice as an alternative. And so that's gonna have a movement that does a bunch of stuff. So the question then becomes, if you wanna buy a traditional watch, an, an analog watch, or even a digital one for that matter, that isn't a smartwatch, you know, what are you looking for that's that's going to be good? Um, if you're buying an analog watch, I think that you you definitely have a few more options. For example, if you want to buy a digital watch, I'd say the Japanese movements are the best. You know, uh, there's a few companies that make them, but Japanese digital watches are so are incredibly rock solid. Uh, Timex also, actually, for that for that matter, um, does a good job. So they definitely have good movements. Um, not all Swiss-made movements are great or desirable. Um, I'm a big fan of Swatch as a brand, but the rank-and-file Swiss-made Swatch plastic quartz movement is quite loud and noisy, and I don't like that. Uh, do all of their watches have that noise? No. Um, I think what's really important to realize is that a lot of the less expensive watch movements are not designed to be repaired. They're essentially designed to be replaced. And that goes for quartz or mechanical ones. So if you have a watch under a certain price point and it breaks, um, don't freak out uh, if somebody doesn't want to fix it because it's not necessarily designed uh, for that. Um, what about you guys? What do you think are, are sort of good competitors to the Swiss movements at these price points? Well, I think the point you make is is the most interesting one, which is at this kind of price level is getting over uh, whether the watch is repairable or not. Well, the movement, the watch can be repaired, but the movements are like a couple of dollars. Yes. So, and that's a, a key point when you're looking at buying something is do you want to be faced one day with the inevitability of having to throw it out or would you rather keep it, live with it and then know that it can get repaired, serviced every five years? I mean, in terms of the run-of-the-mill movements that everybody uses uh, 
Obviously, without going into the complexities of how the Swiss watch movement world works, there's loads of articles on a blog to watch and on Scottish Watch's website about it. Uh, you're sticking with a Salita or an ETA movement at a kind of entry level or a Japanese, you're going NH35 from Seiko, which is the nomenclature they use when Seiko sell their, is it their 4R35 that they call the NH35 when they sell it to other people? Somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's the other way around. It's a different. It's a different company. So, um, yeah. So the NH35 is what it's called when it's sold outside of Seiko, but it's yeah. it's through Seiko Instruments. So the way they mm-hmm. position it is a separate company that actually sells it. And then of course we have Miyota, which is another um, even more popular now, possibly supplier of Japanese movements to third-party companies. And then in Switzerland, you know that's the thing. Back in two th- thousand nine, it was Eta. Now, you know, it's a long list. Now, there's also Solita. Now, there's, of course, Eterna and Saprod and uh, STP and all these little companies right now that are sort of coming out of the woodwork with their own original movements or clones of the 2024. Yeah, both of us have done interviews recently with Orage and their K1 yeah, so movement. The K1. So, you know, yeah. they've they've gone entirely their own route and invested heavily to produce their own movement. I mean, fundamentally within the industry, uh, there's a lot of back and forth as to whether you should try and produce your own in-house movement or try and use somebody else. You've got Bremen in the UK, Christopher Ward, who've now got their own, but a number of companies are still pushing forward to try and develop their own movements. Not at this price point, though. Well, that's true, but there are a lot of really reliable uh, entry-level mechanical watch movements available now. And so anything, Slita, ETA, uh, anything with those kind of names on it and the other ones we've mentioned is going to be acceptable. Uh, Just very briefly, what is your anticipation of the future, Ariel, in terms of where this is going? There's been a big push for people to develop their own. We're now in the middle of a crisis of supply from manufacturers in China, etc. Do you think that overall the right decision has been made or the wrong decisions have been made in light of current events? I wrote an article a couple of years ago that was ostensibly called How the Push for In-House Movements Ruined the Modern Watch Industry. There's definitely good reasons for some companies to make their own movements, but the market never asked for every company to make their own movement and the economics cannot sustain it. So I have, for a number of years, been very skeptical as to why a lot of these brands are doing it. It's complicated as to why they're doing it. A big part of it has to do with the fact that they want want to uh, charge more, which is really ironic because if you think about it, if you make your own parts and you control the pricing and the logistics around it, you tend to pass that off as a lower cost to the consumer after you've amortized the cost of manufacturing. Um, that's that's not what happens in the watch industry when they make their own movements. So, and it's presented a quandary because sometimes the in-house movement, while more exclusive and you know potentially more prestigious, doesn't actually offer you more. It might be you know less reliable. It might do less things. It might be prone to breaking more. So there's a lot of problems there that you have. Um, you get a Seiko, for example, or an Orient, for that matter, and you have. 100% in-house movements. You can get a, you can get a $300 watch, you know, or less with 100% in-house movement, not a problem. So getting getting a watch to satisfy that standard is not expensive and you can do that at the entry level price point. Should you? I don't know. You know, if you're buying a very expensive watch, one of the sort of unstated things is every element of the watch should be original. 
the company asking for that money should put so much detail and effort, they're not reusing parts. And I think that's what a lot of the appeal of an in-house movement is. But at this price point, when it's low, you want to watch movement that is produced in such high volumes that they've worked all the kinks out. There's a lot of people out there that have knowledge of how to fix it. There's spare parts. If you need to get it replaced, it's not that expensive. So at this price point, I like what we call workhorse movements, ones that are celebrated, time-tested, in a lot of watches. In fact, at, at this price point, if there's a movement that is not a common movement and is not used by a lot of brands, I am suspicious and I worry, is this one that will break? Mm. In some instances, like a Seiko, you can be more comfortable. But if it's sort of a, a unique or original movement at this low price point, I tend to get hesitant. So in this area, I want companies to make uh, watches with popular movements that are, are a very conservative choice. Well, I notice as well, on the lower end, some companies, especially micro brands, specifically don't mention, they'll say things like Japanese movement or Swiss movement. And that leads me to believe sometimes these might be clones from unnamed companies of dubious quality. That's why <laughs> I prefer when it says Myota, Seiko, Ronda, STP, or those kinds of brands. Quite yeah. the skeptic, huh? Of course, you have to be. <laughs> Every penny's a prisoner. The rules. <laughs> We're Scottish. I'll, t- I'll tell you what, while they're definitely maybe instances where someone is trying to hide things in my many years of talking to the sort of the newer brands is they don't actually know what consumers want to know in these tech specs or the actual model of the movement is so generic they they don't care they're like yeah it's just the one that fit it's a three-hand movement they all (laughs) operate the same why would you want to know isn't that a bit nerdy sir (laughs) i like to know the size of the engine in the car i'm buying so. Sure, sure. I'm just saying that at the brand, when they withhold the information, mm-hmm. they're not trying to be deceptive. They just can't fathom why you'd want to know. Okay. Rick, what's next on the hit list? What's next on the hit list <laughs> is something we can go through quite quickly, which is the solid feel. So how a watch feels when you've got it on, that actually trying watches on and recognizing that actually there is something intuitive about you know, recognizing that something is a quality piece and a valuable piece at uh, at a particular level. What's your guys' both feelings about just how a watch can feel when you put it on, something that will feel good versus something that will feel, I don't know, jingly-jangly? Well, being the noob here, compared to Ariel, I like something that when you wear it, you can either feel it, but if you feel it, it is balanced. So you don't want something where the watch head is so much more heavy compared to the bracelet that it droops or it wants to hang off the wrist. Um, some watches do that on the, the lower price point and, and other ones, sometimes they don't. There's some really inexpensive micro brands that we've seen recently around about $150 that feel fantastic. So what do you think, Ariel? Well, we're talking about two different things here. The first issue is tolerance and the second issue is ergonomics. Yes. Tolerance is how precisely parts are made in order to fit Uh, what they're trying to do. And the tighter the tolerances are, meaning there's less deviation and the parts fit together better. So it's generally true that the more expensive a production, the more tolerances are respected and the better the parts fit together. And they fit together, they're not going to do the jingly jangly thing. So better tolerances, a sign of more, uh, more expense and effort going into the production that tends to make for a better watch. The second issue is ergonomics. And to a degree, 
it's it's a matter of your own personal anatomy. I've seen watches on people that like they freaking love and I put it on my wrist. I'm like, I can't handle this and vice versa. But I think in general, there's a lot of rules of ergonomics and that is the balance. That is the way the lugs are designed. So if you wear a watch that is just patently non-ergonomic, what that usually means is that whoever designed the watch didn't go through enough rounds of prototyping. They didn't build enough models and say, you know what, this doesn't work. I have to redo this bracelet. I have to redo this crown. That's the sign of effort. And again, when you're buying a watch, you really are investing in human effort. That is that is the the sort of value that you are looking to maximize. There's a number of hours that skilled human beings put into designing the watch, to manufacturing the watch, assembling the watch, um, and possibly also, you know, quality control checking the watch. So these are the types of things that that show that time and effort is put into it. So a watch that's made in a larger volume, for example, these lower price points, tends to have a little bit more respect for the tolerances because there's more things that can go wrong with more models, and there's more people that will get upset if they if the watch doesn't work. So at the higher price points, exclusivity in small production numbers is primarily desirable. But mm-hmm. at the lower price point, I think the opposite is true because if a company is going to invest in a large production run of, let's say, half a million or a million pieces, like a Casio might be, they need to make sure that as much of that watch is right. So they put the time and effort into prototyping it before they put it in production. Conversely, especially today, and this was not really the case in 2009, you have all these little micro brands, Kickstarter brands, whatever, that can very easily slap together a watch with a supplier, go through no rounds of prototyping, and get a product that, yes, technically is a watch, but doesn't have the time and detail put behind it to lead to a level of refinement that someone like us would say makes for a good watch. Yeah. So I realized as we talk about solid fuel ergonomics and wearability that we've forgotten to do something, which is actually very quickly say what watches we are actually wearing <laughs> that we have found suit us uh, so ricky what watch are you actually wearing as we have this conversation well i can lie to everybody and pretend that i've been up for hours and not just climbed out of my bed and okay, say that i'm that wearing then. a rolex gmt master it is the <laughs> master 2 the blnr the original one with the oyster bracelet and this is the watch that i got about three months into my journey on this hobby having gone quite quickly through another couple of watches and it's the one that I love the most. It feels amazing. As Ariel said, the tolerances on Rolex pieces are fantastic. I've had it three years and it still feels as comfortable and as solid and as well put together as it was the day I bought it. Yeah, you get what's called the Rolex squeak, which is that the tolerances are so good that the end links make a slight squeaky noise. The full bracelet when you first can squeak them. on a new watch yeah. until you know, it starts to wear down ever so slightly. Yeah. So this is what you guys talk about. You you worry if your Rolex isn't squeaky enough. <laughs> That's how you can tell if it's real or fake. Right. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I've got one with hollow end links. It's that old. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, what about yourself, Ariel? What are you wearing? Um, I wasn't planning for this question, but I'm actually wearing <laughs> a a ball watch that oh, has a dial that looks like Rolex. It is, the, it is I think it's the hydrocarbon original. And the funny thing is I've had a a hydrocarbon from a few years ago and I'm like, is it just a new dial? And I, and I put the watches side by side and even though they're in the same family, the case is different. The bezel is different. The hands are different. The dial is different. The movement different. Everything's actually different. Um, 
And finally, the hour markers, even though they're tritium gas tubes, are not the little cylindrical tubes. They actually look um, as though there's a layer of luminant under the dial. Oh. Yeah, so we'll, we'll no doubt get this on is... to speaking about gas tubes at some stage, but the ball watches are cool. I've got one, uh, the engineer. Yeah. Well, the best name for a watch I ever saw was quite recently, and it's the Ball Inspector. The Ball Inspector? Yeah, there's also the Ball <laughs> Master. There's a, a series of Ball Masters. <laughs> Tons of those. Uh, Um, The ball fireman is one that I haven't tried yet, but definitely a very dangerous sounding pursuit. (laughs) Ball masters, I'm sure I've dated a few of them in the past. Moving on, right? Possibly. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. You can can relive your days of ball mastery, by the way. (laughs) I'm glad I introduced this question. I'm wearing, for those that care or those that haven't heard our podcast a million times, I'm wearing the Panerai. It's the 233. Uh, There we go. So moving on, this is quite a good one, especially having originally been written in 2009, very applicable today, possibly slightly differently from what you imagine. And this is to do with buying a watch that actual watchmakers have been involved with, as opposed to the kind of more modern day, which is somebody's decided to create a Kickstarter and has bought all the parts off of Etsy or whatever catalog watches, catalogue watch, and decided to put it together. That actually buying watches from micro brands or brands where you know someone who actually is interested in watches, not just in making money, is actually involved. So what's your experience of this gentleman? That's a that's a complicated to respond to question today because so much has changed. I remember there yeah. wasn't Kickstarter back then, or at least not that I remember, and you didn't have these things that we call social media brands where it just adds straight to Facebook. You've never heard about it elsewhere. And yes, to a degree, you can be a marketing person can design a concept and you can hire a third-party company to pretty much do everything. Now, that's not inherently a terrible idea, but compared to a company who lives and breathes watches, who do you think is going to have the better result? The marketing company or the company that like is the tool company and knows how to build the watches? So this goes back to the previous response I said, where a company that's putting a lot of effort into a high volume product is going to make sure that it works well. A company who's been making tool watches for a long time, especially at the lower price point, knows how to give you the best bang for your buck. And I've said this many times before when it comes to like a $100 Casio. And Again, I'm not saying this sort of as gospel, but it's sort of a general rule. For about $100, there is no better value out there than you know a Casio. It's not that there's, there aren't cheaper watches out there, and there's definitely more expensive watches out there, but the amount of like engineering you have, the amount of thought that goes into it, you just can't get that in $100 elsewhere. So it tends to be that with the smaller brands, the more time and effort they put into it, the necessity increases to raise the retail price. So you just don't find operations that make very high quality, inexpensive watches, but they don't do anything themselves. It could theoretically happen, and it probably has happened a few times since uh, 2009. But for the most part, if you want a reliable, pro- reliable product, just find one of those companies that does this on a regular basis and that they do most of the work themselves or they're just a company that makes watches. It's, it's, you know, BMW is a car maker um, and a vehicle maker. Has BMW designed some watches? Yes. In fact, they've designed some watches with ball that I'm wearing in the yes. past. But like, I wouldn't go to BMW 
uh, thinking that they are going to be a serious watchmaker. If it's some special high-end thing, yes, that's cool. But I guess the point is, at these price points, the best thing for most customers is to trust companies that, that do this on a regular basis. Yeah, so Ricky and Ariel, give us one watch that you have bought from uh, what was clearly not a watch brand, but was just so <laughs> tempting that you thought, yeah, I've got to have it. Mine is a watch called the Horizon Watch, which was a Kickstarter, I think, uh, and went promptly bust after it delivered some shonky stock. Uh, what about you guys? You must have bought some dodgy Kickstarter numbers in your time just because it looked like a really cool idea. Well, I'll take it back to roughly around about the time almost where Ariel wrote this article and I bought one of the first smartwatches and it was from Kickstarter right in the early days and it was the Pebble. And uh. that wasn't a super... Well, it was actually. It was quite inexpensive as we're talking about, you know, entry level and whatnot. But it had a lot of inherent problems because the guys had never designed a watch before. They thought it would be easy. They get lots of funding, lots of money. It went to their head a little bit. And then they get caught up in the whole, oh, we need to design prototype. Prototype doesn't work. We need to redesign. We need to refine. We need to have a second and a third and a fourth prototype. And the finished product, when it was delivered late, still didn't really function properly. So that was probably the first and the only thing I can put my finger on that wasn't great from an inexpensive brand that had just started out. Ariel? Yeah, I'm thinking... Um... There's no way you've not got a drawer on your desk that's just full of some absolute junk that hasn't worked for 10 Pick years. Pick a brand that's going out of business so you don't annoy them. <laughs> no, I'll, so I'll, give you, I'll give you a good example of something that... that I, this was before I even started the website, so this is a long time ago. I mean, I had made most of my collector mistakes, and we all have. You're, oh, you're yes. going to make collector mistakes. It's better to do it at a cheap level. Uh -huh. But it was before... You know, before I had the confidence to go out there and write about watches to the public, like who am I to talk about watches to the public if I'm still making dumb mistakes? But I remember that there was a there was a Bell and Ross watch I really liked, and it, it was I couldn't afford it. So I remember there was an Invicta that was like it was like a lookalike one. It was not a copy. It was like a lookalike. I'd never bought an Invicta before, and this is I mean this is this is again more than ten years ago now. Um, and I remember getting it, and I wore it for a little a little while, and then like one of the screws came out, like on the bezel, because you know how uh -huh. like the the bell the BR one had like these four screws, yeah, yeah. And, and like no, there was no reason the screw came out. I remember like thinking to myself, like an actual screw is screwed in, it's held in. Like I totally understand the principle of a screw. Like <laughs> what cheap construction would have conspired to allow a screw to so easily, like a big screw, just unwind? <laughs> I couldn't fathom it. And to this day, I still have the watch and it's, you know, missing that screw. It's like a big gaping hole and it. it looks awful. And it just reminds me that like certain companies do their best to make something look compelling, but do not care if it works properly or if it lasts long. And I hate when watches break. I hate when watches break. So I am super careful about buying things that at least in my, my mind are going to like remain structurally sound <laughs> because i hate the idea of spending money on something like that and like and you you buy it because you love it and then it like breaks in front of your eyes about like a tudor gmt is is that is that what happens to them too the date wheels do <laughs> well, leave my tudor gmt alone it's fine it's lovely 
That's lovely. Now yes. with their factory closed, who will fix all the GMTs that are Well, brought? yes, that's breaking news today. We're recording this the day that Rolex have announced that they're closing their factory for 10 days. So you, to make hand sanitizer. So that, well, I was going to say to make hand sanitizer like LVMH Group. So if you're on a waiting list for that uh, no date uh, or date or whatever it is, Submariner, just add 10 days to the wait list and that'll be fine. Uh, three years you were waiting three years and ten days Uh, are are you guys still waiting for watches i think we talked about this last time (laughs) yes do not wait for watches i am still waiting for the this is a good point so for those that don't know uh on our podcast on the scottish watch podcast we recorded an interview with ariel for episode 40 now we are on now on episode 127 on episode 40 i was waiting for my zenith inventor I am still waiting for my Zenith inventor. They haven't so. invented it yet, don't you know that? <laughs> That's right. It's, Rick, it's a post- at least I figured thing. this out and went and got my money back. <laughs> yes, it's true. I'm just yeah. a glutton for punishment. Uh, but anyway, I, bet, I maybe should consider, just in case all these jewelers go bust, seeing as they're not selling, they're sitting on my deposit. Anyway, uh, another matter. Let's move on. Uh, so very quickly, this is to do with uh, straps and in particular, well, it could apply to straps as well as bracelets. And this is about looking for locking clasps in entry-level watches. So very quickly, you can get a bracelet, a strap, a NATO strap, leather straps, etc., etc. But how you actually fasten the ends of the strap together is always worthy of consideration. Well, I think we should educate people right here and right now the difference between deployment and deployant. Okay, deployment, <laughs> deployment. Okay, a deployant clasp is what you have in watches. You deploy armies. Okay, that's the difference. Okay. You deploy Look, armies, you deploy clasps. Can you appreciate that the word deployant isn't used basically anywhere else yeah. and it sounds a lot like deployment and and you know you're just listening casually you may not know that there's a brand new word to add to your vocabulary it took it it, it it probably took me a few years i was probably saying deployment until one time i realized wait a minute that's a different spelling to be fair brian govberg's company has been selling watches for years and he still makes the mistake very true that's a shout out to you brian yes. <laughs> we love you man <laughs> anyway, so what are so- the options then uh, well, uh, one of the early watches I've got is what you would call a friction clasp. So it's a, a metal bracelet. And all that happens is when you uh, close it, the little bit at the end that closes the strap over effectively holds itself on by friction. You push it on over a couple of uh, ball bearings or metal sticky out bits, for want of a better description, and you force the clasp over and that locks it, and then you need to get your thumbnail to force it off. Uh, and the problem with that is that if you are catch, you talking about your Cartier? I am talking about my Cartier. It's it's yeah. it's, it's 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 a disaster. I never wear it now. I, when I'm driving tractors and working on cars. I just find the car is completely unwearable now because of that clasp. So anyway... Put your Patek so, instead. I, well, the Patek's at least got a leather strap, at, although they do object when I put a NATO on it, but there we go. It's my watch. I can do what I like with it. I, so the whole idea of a locking clasp is it gives you that a little bit more security that if you catch on something, it's not falling to the bottom of the swimming pool. Has anyone got any good stories of actually you know, completely separating their watch from their strap because they catch it on something or in the case of a NATO, which is supposed to offer extra security, I actually well, used let, it in war. Let me explain sort of, again, why I, I, I mentioned this because it can seem 
a little bit obscure. It's like why you're focusing on like how the bracelet system connects. It's essentially a sign. If the if the watch has gone to the point where they carefully thought about how the bracelet attaches, there's probably a bunch of other details that they've also considered as well. My it's like, first it's like the analog M&M, watch. It's sorry, it's like the M and M's rule. So now, what it's, was the band? Uh, it was Black Sabbath. So I know it wasn't Black about. Sabbath. No, it was Van. It was Van. It was Van Halen. No, was it Van Halen? Oh, was, maybe. Oh, that's a tough one. Whereby they had such a big and expensive stage show with lots of explosions and dangerous stuff that one of the riders was that they wanted M and M's, but they wanted all the brown ones taken out, and there the the the. The shaggy dog story that goes with it is, as you say, with the watches, it was so that they knew that if the people that were setting up the arena were paying enough attention to remove the brown M&Ms from their big bowl of M&Ms, it probably meant they'd paid enough attention to all the actual difficult and dangerous stuff that was going on and was likely to kill them. And this was the same as what you were saying for watches. Yeah, um, it's also annoying, like you said, when you have a watch that just doesn't stay closed. And I've had a lot of watches that maybe the the bracelet experiences some shock or there's um, a twist in your wrist and your wrist expands and it opens it up. It's been an awful long time since I've worn a watch like that because I avoid watches like that. But early on, when I was still trying to figure out like how to best spend my money on watches... I think all of us are buying those watches with the friction or sometimes as they're known tension clasps. Yes. And we don't none of us like those. You you've said horrible things about them and there are even some very expensive watches that have them. Sometimes it's unavoidable. I think the bottom line is that if you are buying a watch at a low price point, you want to make sure that the company got as many details right as possible. A core element of wearing a watch is making sure that it does not accidentally come off your wrist. Now, most safety clasps, even if it opens up, yes, it will not just fall to the floor. But still, you don't want your your deployant just randomly opening up and loosening up on your wrist. It's extraordinarily annoying. And if it wasn't for the fact that I had several experiences with watches that I would have otherwise liked, say for this bracelet issue, I don't think I would have included it in the article back then. And this is, again, something that is namely of importance for people just getting into it. How much of an issue this is now versus 11 years ago, I'm not sure. I mean, you take your average um, entry-level Seiko watch back then to now, and it's a much upgraded product now. So certain companies that, that have inexpensive watches that may have had uh, lower quality bracelets back then could have possibly upgraded the quality of the bracelets. But in general, you're going to want to avoid ones that don't securely um, close. Yeah. So moving on from that kind of construction, we move to, I suppose, an overall feeling of construction, which is just how heavy, how massive is the watch? Does it feel like it's got some heft to it? So what was your thinking on this as being something to look out for uh, in entry-level watches, you know? So this is interesting, and this is definitely an area where a lot of things have changed over the past 11 years because a lightweight watch as a category within luxury watches has been created. This is never a thing in any real way. And it's the same as it is in motorsports that the lighter a vehicle is, you know, the faster it's going to go and the better it's going to perform. Is it really an issue on the wrist? No. But it is true that a very lightweight watch is, you know, it's it's 
you don't feel it as much. You feel a little bit freer, so it's nice. But this, when I was writing this, remember, this is old, uh, I guess, visualization you have of someone putting a watch or a piece of jewelry in the palm of their hand, and they're raising their hand up and down as sort of trying to get a feel of the weight. And I think the idea goes to sort of what we're talking about before. Is it solidly built? Um, does it use a lot of metal? Um, there are watches that inside have plastics and things like that, which isn't inherently anything wrong with that, but they can be they can they can last less time or be less durable than metal. So a watch that has low tolerances and that or I'm sorry is is very high tolerances and and it 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 is constructed well, uses solid metal pieces, uses a lot of metal um and doesn't have hollow areas is typically going to be a chunkier, beefier feeling watch. These days, you do have the ultra light watch, which is a different type of engineering challenge, and it's a different type of product. It still needs to feel solid, but it really has to do with the fact that at the same price point, you can have watches with very cheap materials and ones at better ones, and that historically speaking, there was this whole thing that the weight of the watch mattered. And in a real way, it still does. Yeah, the, I mean, you're not going to get... Uh, or you're going to be very fortunate to find a titanium or a carbon fiber or an exotic materials watch which where weight isn't an issue at an entry-level price point. You're not far off it now. You can go up to $1,000 and find uh, find some carbon-affected watches, maybe some initial titanium ones I can think of, but uh, the run-of-the-mill oh, stuff no. you're looking for is, you, is steel. You, it's, it's very different now. Um you can get a Citizen Super Titanium watch for about three hundred dollars now. All right, well, is that the Ray Mears? Uh, what we call in this what's country? That? The, I think in this country that's what we call the Ray Mears watch, which uh, we actually did a video of uh, not that long ago uh, with uh, one of the retailers over here. Uh, it's just a, a well-known UK survivalist type, and that's the watch he's uh, famed for wearing is this uh, Titanium Citizen watch. So yeah, yeah the. Those are great. Um, you have carbon now and various carbon materials coming in at very inexpensive price points. Um, it's not a luxury material, which is kind of ironic. It became a luxury material because certain blends of carbon compounds were used for very fancy Richard Mille watches. And it was actually less about the material and more about the interesting colors and organic patterns and the fact that you could machine it properly. So it used to be that these carbon materials couldn't be machined with the precision of a metal case. And now uh, there's a lot of harder ones. Um, so it's not necessarily a luxury material, but because it's become popular, you're seeing these metal alternatives that are pretty good at uh, surprisingly low price levels. So we're getting into the uh, uh, back end of today's show, and we're on to another one that kind of reflects the idea of if a watchmaker has taken pride in his watch, then it's most likely that it's going to be decent value for money at an entry level, and that is a signed crown. That's a good question, and you're absolutely right that in the last 11 years, there's been so many um, increased abilities for small companies and, and individuals who want to make watches to make much more bespoke products than ever before. And there's some watches today that that stubbornly have nothing on the crown. I mean, a lot of Seiko watches do, but like until a certain price point, you can buy you can buy a six hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred dollar you know Seiko watch that has just an empty crown. So there are it's not a hard and fast rule, but I think that we'll agree that 
um, when somebody is proud of their product, they put the finishing touches in there to demonstrate to the world that there's a superlative level of attention in this. And, you know, like the situation we're talking about with the contract and the M&Ms, a crown is one of those things that people can identify. So again, when I wrote this, I thought to myself, so someone who didn't necessarily have the ability to study watches the way we would understand it, but could look at easily identifiable things. Because anyone going to a store or looking on a website can see the side of a watch and look at the crown and say like, oh, you know, is there is there something there? So that's why I like that because it's something that anyone with any educational level can identify. Is there something on the crown or not? Um, but you're right. These days, it's perhaps a little bit less a factor, but it's a decorative touch. And I think what, what remains true is the fact that consumers should be looking for those finishing touches on watches that, um, they, that are going to make them happy at, at this price point. Ricky, what's your experience of uh, the things you would look for in a, in a brand, an entry level? Type, type environment? Well, one of the, the things we've seen running Scottish watches for the last year and a bit is a lot of micro brands have approached us, maybe brands that didn't get traction elsewhere with the bigger places. And the level of quality, even on the most inexpensive of watches now, is incredible, mostly. Uh, there was a watch I was sent recently from Phantom, a new British brand that comes in around about £159, and it had everything you would look for. The bezel didn't wobble, the fit and finish was good, the printing on the dial was decent, the loom was good, the crown was nice. It's just the whole thing. Uh, like you say about fears as well, the packaging, what arrives when you open the packaging up, the box, the, the manual, the way it's printed, if there's spelling mistakes, if they even give you a manual. Uh, it's just the whole round <laughs> package. Uh, a lot of places don't, or it's they give you the manual for a watch that you haven't bought because it's so generic. Or they have multiple yes. pages for different things. It's like, well, I bought this particular watch. I've spent my hard-earned money. I want something that's relevant. So, guys, think of this. This is the challenge that we have to convey to the listener. Um, and I think that, that what you're talking about is absolutely true, that there's these very low price points to get a great product. But I'm sure you'll agree that the design of the watch tends to be generic because it's not like the manufacturer perfected that case style or that bracelet for that customer. So that's like a, a, a genericized design that they manufacture for others, and they can give it to any particular client at a low price, but there's nothing or not a lot that's very original. And so this is the challenge. At the low price points, we know that it's that sort of intersection between value and originality that we're looking for. We want it to be of a high quality, but we also want to look distinctive and original. But someone who's just getting this hobby, who hasn't had the benefit of looking at a bunch of watches, has no idea what is and isn't original. Yeah, maybe they can say that looks like a that, that looks like a Rolex, but we know the copying does not stop there. So I don't know how to always tell somebody watch out for copies, or watch out for things that aren't original. And at these price points, I think it matters less. But it's very important for a lot of people to understand that if you do have a super high quality uh, watch at a low price point, oftentimes. It's trying to look like something else and may not have the originality that you will eventually be able to get in a more exp expensive price point watch. Yeah, there is definitely, I mean, uh, the whole idea of homage watches, etc. would fill several episodes of it in its own right. I, I want to I add something important here because, again, this is taking into consideration who I think a lot of the audience is, and that's people that genuinely want to know how to get into watches and things yes. like that. It's entirely okay, if not preferred, 
to buy homage watches when you're first starting out for the very simple reason of, of you, you're testing the design. Do you want to spend the 10000 bucks on the Rolex before you know if it's the design for you? I've, I wore, I don't know, half a dozen Submariner clones, if you will, before I actually bought a Submariner. I would have never bought the Submariner if I didn't think like, yeah, I, I like this. This works on my wrist. Yeah. So it's okay to sample as long as you're not getting an actual, you know, counterfeit watch. It's okay to sample designs in a less expensive packaging if you know what it is. What you risk is that if you're out there in the world and there's people that know the Submariner and see what you're wearing and recognize it's not a Submariner, you're going to look a little bit like a poser. And unless that person's like, a watch lover that kind of gets it, it's going to send the wrong message. So the homage watches are great as you're sampling what a nice watch should be. You're trying to understand the experience, but that's not the end of your journey. Yes, there's some collectors that like to collect homages and stuff like that because they're fun and they're less of a commitment and they're just sort of bored of the other watches. And there are those people, but that's not entry-level collecting. Entry-level collecting it's okay to buy the the homages and the replica, not the replicas. The um, you know, it's 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 the the lookalike. It's the generic one. It's not always the one to one copy, but it's oh, that kind of looks like that mm-hmm. because you're trying to figure out what works for you. There's these classic designs. Look, you know. If you didn't wear a blue dialed watch, would you know that you love blue dialed watches? If you didn't wear a particular type of bracelet, or if you never had a chronograph, would you know that you even like it? It's it, you can't just look at popularity out there and be like, a bunch of people love the Daytona, so chronographs must be awesome. It doesn't really work that way. You have to make these decisions for yourself. That's how you set yourself up for a fall. We spot as people, ourselves included, when you begin the hobby, you get interested, you can get taken along. You know, there's certain brands or certain models that you need as part of a collection. I've seen people talk about you need a Submariner, you need a Speedmaster. You don't need anything. You need to pick and choose what you like. And you're exactly right. You don't know what's going to look good on your wrist. A photograph on a website that's all polished and photoshopped looks completely different to a watch on your wrist in sunlight or sitting at a desk. When I started a blog to watch, one of the principal things I was trying to do is create the next best thing to seeing a watch in person. Mm -hmm. The photography I did was specifically to replicate what it would look like to see a watch on your wrist because of that very problem. And, you know, I've seen watches just in the last couple of days that in person compared to the marketing images, it's like, it's like one of them looks like a drawing of the other. It doesn't look like the actual. It's like, like, who are you trying to deceive here? It's it's insane. It's so much Photoshop. It doesn't even become a real thing anymore. Um, and and that's the that's the double-edged sword of the internet as a place to learn about watches. You can learn so much about so many things so much faster than you'd ever be able to in the real world. But you have to know. Uh, when to to turn off. I advise people, do not buy a Rolex within the first four or five years of collecting watches. It's a stupid idea to do so because you won't know how to appreciate what you have and you might end up finding your watch super boring and you're definitely not going to be able to appreciate the money you put into it. So why even do that? You need to expose yourself to a lot of watches before you can wear a Rolex proudly. I firmly believe this. So start out buying cheap watches. I advise people as soon as they get into watches to go and put their name on a Rolex waiting list because it'll be three (laughs) or four years before they actually get one and then they can make their mind up then as to whether they like it. Did I not tell you guys to not try to buy watches that don't want your money? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Very quickly, let's look at how watches are loomed and why this is important. So what you mean is uh, how well a watch can be seen when there is no light on the watch? Yes, 
Well, you know, again, this is another interesting thing which has changed over the last 10 years because what you have now, and you had it back then, is a lot more really nice watches that don't have lube, you know, dress watches and things at this price point. So I think the first thing to say is if your watch doesn't have luminant on it, it doesn't mean it's a bad thing. But if you are if you are getting a, a sports watch um, and there there is an opportunity to see the watch at, at night, you can have a whole variety of experiences. And it might sound odd to someone who hasn't experienced a watch with terrible loom, but like I'm, I'm, I have a watch on my desk right now by a very reputable company that has loomed hour markers, but does not have loomed hands. Like this still <laughs> happens today. Okay then. <laughs> um, so there's a certain type of logic that needs to be followed on a dial where the elements have to work together. And so what you have a lot is watch companies, especially the lower price points, copying the looks of other famous watches. But because they don't want to com like completely one-to-one -one copy, what they do is they start to Frankenstein things together. And you start to have mixture of design elements from a variety of popular looks that have merged together and they don't always make sense. And so Luminant is also an entry point into legibility. And this is something which I, I, you know, I pound my fist on the table all the time about legibility. And there's one thing that I would have to add, and I did talk about it in these articles a little bit, but do not buy a watch that you cannot read. There are many, many watches on the market that you cannot read. Don't let them fool you. Don't buy them. They are a mistake. <laughs> Avoid them at all costs. Okay, so moving on to our final one today then. And this is a bit more generic, but I know what you're driving at. And this is consistent pricing. So I think what I take from this, and again, I suppose it's a bit updated for the whole Kickstarter thing, is what are you actually buying for the price that they're asking you to pay? And is it fair, the price they're asking you to pay versus the price they might be asking somebody else to pay? You know, again, it comes down a bit to research etc you know we see in kickstarters the watch starts at 149 pounds for the first 50 people in and then the you know once it goes right up they're then looking for 500 quid for the same thing should you really be buying a watch for 500 pounds that was originally being sold for 149 me no yeah we'd be doing this is that. This is an interesting thing that's evolved over the last 11 years, especially because of things like Kickstarter. And I love Kickstarter as a tool, but I avoid um, recommending it to novices because if there's a watch on Kickstarter that says the Kickstarter price is $300, the retail price is going to be $750, you, to some degree, have to take the word of the Kickstarter campaign that, that that's, those are fair pricing. You have to be an expert like us, who has seen so many watches, to look at that and be like, yeah, that looks like $300 is a good value. And even at $700 or whatever, it would still be a decent value. If you don't know enough about watches, you could you could just be you know taken advantage of because you don't necessarily know. Um, so that's one thing I would add to the discussion of consistent pricing is do not buy things just as they're released, believing the brand that it's a good value. That's something that a novice simply can't do. Consistent pricing also has to do with the discount culture. And we talked about watches like Invicta that um, you I, no one has ever actually purchased an Invicta at the retail price. Well, I'm sure someone has, but the idea is that they're designed to be discounted. And a lot of watches, the prices of them just vary. They come out, they're one price. Two years later, they're another price. 
what I advise to people who are just getting into watches is try not to spend too much money on watches that are just coming out, especially not from brand new brands, because you don't have enough experience to know whether or not that is a good price. A company like Timex or Casio or Citizen or Seiko um, is not the type of company who's going to try to like pull one when it comes to pricing. They're very, very fair. If one watch is 300 and one is 500 and one is 800 there's definitely a quality difference between those um, within that brand. And that's, that's a lot more consistent pricing. So that's generally what I was talking about. So should the rule be never pay sticker? Uh, not necessarily, um, but you have to know the market. You know, if if the market is designed that the sticker price is a place to begin a discounting campaign, then yeah, don't pay sticker. But there's a lot of instances where paying sticker is totally fair. And without some experience and you know knowledge, uh, it's going to be very difficult for a novice to, to make that determination. Well, that is our first 10 uh, hints and tips of getting into entry-level watches and collecting them. What we're going to leave you with though is so this is the kind of range of like three hundred dollars to a thousand dollars and the the next episodes will go uh, a bit more expensive but in light of all of those uh hints and tips give us a couple of watches or a couple of brands that you would recommend somebody should go and look at that have watches that fulfill all of these i will give you one to get you going and that is at the low end of what they supply is doxa and a company called Formex would be two watch brands I would go and have a look at that I think a lot of what they produce at the lower end of their price ranges fulfills quite a number of these criteria. Ariel, who would you recommend folks should go and have a look at? This is one of my times where I'm going to have to be a little bit evasive, but for a good reason. <laughs> There's a pool of at least 100, probably yeah, yeah. more brands that I could bring up. So uh, whatever I said would be arbitrary. Give us a watch in your collection then that fulfills oh, some of these categories? I, I mean, I've mentioned the Japanese brands time and time again um, because I feel that there is an enormous amount of variety and fairness and quality within that. So is there one specific Japanese model that I recommend? No. I mean, you have, you have Citizen, you have Seiko, you have Casio, and you have Orient, which is technically part of Seiko. Um, there's other little Japanese watchmakers out there, but to between these four brands, there's hundreds of watches that you can get to start out with. Uh, there are going to be all kinds of things that you're not going to find in Japanese watches, especially the the cheaper price points. They don't get wild until you get more expensive, so you're not going to find artistic watches. There's a lot of things you're going to miss out on, but just to get yourself to understand... Um, what you should be looking for at high value, there's, there's, there's so much to explore um, in that area. Um, but then again, you have you know watches like Swatch that, from an artistic standpoint, are great. If you know, it, it's a matter of style which one you want. But I think that watches like that are always good. So it's learn what a good tool watch is, and then be playful um, with the expressive value of watches. And there's, there's a lot of companies out there that, that at the cheaper level. Um, no, no, I'm not necessarily telling people to look for a tool watch, but look for a well-curated artistic watch because wearing a watch is about self-expression and you have to experiment with different styles and different looks and different colors um, before you do it. So learning about watches is learning about the tool and then learning how to use a watch as a fashion ex accessory. I hate to, to make it sound so cheap like that, but the idea is that it speaks about the wearer 
and you incorporate into your lifestyle and that takes a little bit of skill and, and experience okay. so Ricky give us one watch from your collection that you think and exclude all your Invictus I'm going to mention Invictus so get it right up you I <laughs> think see obviously I had some problems with Invictus I've got about four and I bought them because everyone said they were so bad and for the money the quality of workmanship, maybe things have changed in the last 10 years, but they've actually been okay. They've got Seiko internal movements. They are homage styled and you can get them from Amazon and other places. So if you do run into issues with warranty, it's quite easy to get them back. That's one thing that's at the real low end. And another brand I would say is a sort of entry level, although not super expensive, is Christopher Ward. Some of their watches, and we saw some last year, we got some samples in across to play with. The workmanship, the finishing, and the quality, even the accuracy of the, the Swiss-made movements inside it's a Salita, for the money is unparalleled. The bezel action, the fit and finish, that would be where I would put my money if I was just getting into things and there was something in their lineup that I like to look of. Yeah, cool. Excellent, gentlemen. Well, thank you one and all. Thank you for sticking with us and listening to this uh, first episode of the combo that is a blog to watch and Scottish watches. Ariel, would you like to tell everybody where they can find all of your content and all that sort of clobber? Uh, certainly, thank you. Um, the series that we have been talking about is called Top Things. Things to look for in a luxury watch. This uh, was the part one article known as Entry Level Luxury that we talked about. This was published back in 2009. It's a series of three articles. There's a lot of various types of guides um, like this that uh, that we have written on a blog to watch over the years. There's probably uh, 100 articles of various types of introductory topics. Um, so uh, uh, on the website, there's various tools we have to find some of those. Um, I love uh, educating people because I think it's all about making new friends, right? We mm. we need people to understand some of these details so that they can have conversations with us and then we feel a little bit less lonely. So that's a good thing. So get into <laughs> watches so that we can chat with you. And I think on the last episode, we're going to want to answer questions um, from yes. you. So there's going to be some type of system for you to a to ask questions, but I'm really looking forward uh, to the answering part. Yeah, so we will do be doing four episodes in total of this mini series. The next three, next two will be of a similar format to this, and the final one will be a Q&A, because what's a podcast without a Q&A episode? Uh, so look out on both uh, their Blog to Watch Instagram feed and the Scottish Watches Instagram feed and Facebook pages, etc. We'll uh, be putting out information that allow you to ask questions from there. In terms of us, you can find us at scottishwatches.co.uk. We produce two podcasts a week, so go to your iTunes, your Spotify's, etc., etc. So there should be something there that you'll like. Uh, if you want to hear an original e uh, interview with Ariel, you can find that at episode 40. Uh, so go and have a look at that. And thank you for listening. Ricky, why don't you... Take us out of the show. Oh, there's a, a change up. So, yep, <laughs> thanks for listening, guys. It has been an absolute pleasure, Ariel. Thank you for your time and thanks for taking us down a little walk of history of the last 11 years as well. Being relative newcomers to this game of three years, it's interesting not only the hundreds of years of watchmaking, but just how things have changed. I didn't realise they'd changed quite as dramatically in just over a decade. So that's been a bit of an education for both myself and Rick as well, I'm sure. So thanks for that. And thanks for listening. Be sure to like, subscribe, follow us on all platforms. And we will catch you in the second one. Thanks a lot, guys. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.